0: Meals with Jesus. On the back of your bulletin, upcoming sermons are listed out from next Sunday onward. Today, in the next 10 weeks, we're going to be looking at Meals with Jesus. And as you'll notice, the scripture passages will all come from Luke's gospel, except for today. Today's passage will be John chapter 2. And we're going to start in John 2 because I believe this passage, this story, about Jesus at a wedding, changing water to wine, sets up all the themes that you're about to hear for the next 10 weeks. So if you listen carefully and closely and you follow along, you'll be able to get basically all of the 10 weeks in this Sunday's service. So I don't know if that's going to wet your appetite to say, I want more, that's my hope, and rather the latter idea of saying, well, I got all of it, let's just skip church for the next nine weeks. That would hopefully not be your response. We're going to start with John chapter 2 and this story and see several different themes about who Jesus is, what he came to do, what this means for you and me, his mission. And so let's dive right in so we can start introducing this series of Meals with Jesus. In these black Bibles around you, John chapter 2 can be found on page 887 I'll be reading from those Bibles, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. I want us to look at four lessons as we kind of walk through this text together that I think will be really helpful for you as you understand more about who Jesus is, and I'd like us to conclude to answer this big question, why did Jesus do this water-to-wine miracle? So let's start first with these lessons and work through this text. Starting with verses 1 through 3, I want you to learn the lesson that we should bring our problems to Jesus. Lesson 1, you should bring your problems to Jesus. You see, what's going on here is a big problem. And on the surface, you and I are thinking, running out of wine does not seem like a big problem. But friends, it is. In more ways than one, this would have been devastating. Weddings in this day aren't one-day events as we're accustomed to them. Think of the wedding and the honeymoon all wrapped up in one big party. So instead of honeymoons, imagine investing all of your finances into this one huge party for the whole town. Cana, we see here, is a small town. It's likely that Basically, the whole village is here, and so this is expensive, it's not easy to pull off, and to run out of wine would have been such a social no-you-don't sort of mistake that it could have even led to a lawsuit from the bride's family to sue the groom's family for being unable to provide for the bride and her party. Like, that's a big deal, isn't it? Like, when you're reading this, you're thinking, okay, so they ran out of wine. Go just drink some water and whatever else. Like, this, this doesn't seem to be a big deal, but it is. It's a very big deal, and it would have caused a lifetime of guilt, shame, all sorts of disgrace on this family. Now, notice here that the, the person in charge of this wedding is the groom, so, again, backwards here, not just one day, it's week long, and not the bride who is in charge of paying and putting on the party, it's the groom that's in charge, which is why the master, the head servant, the guy that's kind of the, the right-hand man to this party, he's the one that goes to the groom and says, hey, you saved the best for last." meaning he's the one in charge, he's the one providing the wine. So the groom would have likely had a lifetime of guilt shame, disgrace, and potentially even lawsuits for this big problem. Jesus's mother, which is interesting that she's not referenced as Mary, which we'll get to in just a second, but Jesus's mother is likely helping the family out. We know that where Jesus grew up is not too far within maybe 5 to 8 miles of Cana in Galilee. So this is kind of like a neighboring town of where Jesus grew up, so it seems Sort of obvious to think that maybe Mary here has family ties with the wedding party and is helping them like women and others would help get the arrangements together for a normal festivities like this, which is why she knows that they're out of wine and why other people don't know that yet. She's helping, she's serving. She knows about this shortage and we know that she tells the servants what to do after this exchange with Jesus. So that's Well, you put these pieces together, Mary's not just an attender. She seems to be in charge in some way. She seems to be involved with the plans. So what does she do when she realizes that this awful thing is about to happen? The groom is about to be embarrassed. The wine has run out. Not just we're running low, we're out. She brings the matter to Jesus. She wants his help. We don't necessarily know what she's thinking that she has in mind for help. It doesn't say anywhere explicitly that he is being asked to do a miracle. All we see are these words, the wine ran out. Now, it's probably similar to maybe the way my wife might say to me, the grass needs cut. This is not just a statement of fact. It's, now do something about it, Phil. Okay? The house needs cleaned. Okay? You can kind of think, along those lines, that's what's being inferred here. Jesus is being asked for help. We don't know what the help would be. Does she think that Jesus would do a miracle? Maybe. She knows that angels came to his birth announcement. Hey, you're pregnant. Angels came when he was born. Hey, a Savior's born today. Like, this was not some boy that you'd just forget about. Like, oh yeah, yeah, I remember. Back when this guy was born, I was a virgin. Oh yeah, and there was angels all over the place. You know, that's something that you probably keep in mind and maybe at the right time you say, this guy might be special. Maybe he could help out in this big problem and dilemma. What she's asking again, we can't be for sure. To ask for a miracle, I think might be presuming too much, but she's certainly coming to Jesus for help. Which brings us to our first lesson. Whether the problem is big or small, Jesus is the person you should turn in your help. For help, turn to Jesus. I wonder how many of you have ever felt throughout your life that the wine at your party is out. Could this be a metaphor symbolically of how sometimes you make plans, and they go really poorly, and you're in a heap of trouble? Friend, have you asked Jesus for help? Do you believe that he can help you? If you're here this morning and you're not sure what it really means to be a Christian, let me help you understand that the first step of being a Christian is to admit that you need help and that your wine has, in fact, run out. Your life, it's empty without Jesus, so run to him for help. Don't ask him, hey, Jesus, I've got a little bit of wine left, and could you top me off? Come to him with empty hands, because that's all you really have, and say, Jesus, I've got nothing in my hands to bring. Simply to the cross I cling. This is the first step of understanding our condition before God. You have guilt and shame already. The wine has run out, and everybody knows about it. Do you? All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All have guilt and shame. I wonder, what's that one thing in your life that you feel the most guilty about? You know, I think if we're really just honest for a second, there's just this one thing in our life that we don't want anybody to know about, and when they find out, we feel so embarrassed. Have you ever taken that to Jesus and see what he does with people's guilt and shame? Second lesson, after you turn to Jesus for help with your problems, second thing you need to do is trust him with your problems. Because what you have in mind might be different than what he has in mind. And that's exactly what we see happening here in the very strange verses that you see in verses 4 and 5. Look again at verses 4 and 5. This has puzzled me. This has puzzled commentators. This probably has puzzled you when you heard it. He hears from Mary, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What in the world kind of response is this? At first, if you read this the way you and I would read it in the English language, you would probably put a little too much emphasis on the woman, and it's not like that at all. So don't read into the text this sort of disrespectful woman. Who do you think you are? The very same phrase is used from Jesus hanging on a cross as he tells Jesus, Mom, Mary, woman, behold your son. I don't see Jesus hanging on the cross going, woman, behold your son. Okay? If that's the same phrase, the same word used later in the same gospel of John, chapter 19, we can know pretty clearly that this is probably more like you and I, if we were to translate this, ma'am. Now, that might soften it a little bit. But there's still two problems here, isn't there? One, why doesn't he refer to her like more affectionately like mother? Because later in chapter 2, he's going to talk about his father, and he speaks regularly about his father throughout the gospel. So he's not afraid to use affectionate terms. Why this formal language, ma'am? But even if that doesn't kind of ruffle the feathers... The next phrase should. And it should even more so than just looking at the surface because you're looking at that and you're seeing, what does this have to do with you and me? My hour has not come. It seems strange. It seems complex. But then when you start studying this passage, you realize that this this phrase, what does this have to do with you and me, appears elsewhere in the Gospels. And guess where it appears? In the mouth of a demon-possessed man telling Jesus, what do you have to do with me? Okay, so if these are the same phrases used by demon-possessed people talking to Jesus, I think you should start to see there's some sort of sternness or sharpness here. Even though it might not be a woman kind of sharpness and it could be respectful ma'am, there is definitely a change of direction here. What does this have to do with me? If I were to put it in most just very simple, common, everyday language translated for you and for me today. This, this is hours and hours of reading every single commentary I could possibly find from greatest scholar to whoever. I mean, I've just poured over, what is this trying to say? Here's my best shot of trying to explain it. I think Jesus is saying, excuse me, ma'am, I'm not sure what you had in mind, but I have a specific mission and it's different than what you had in mind. The reason for that is because of the clue of my hour has not come. And that's the one I think we can feel a little more certain about. What does this phrase, my hour has not come, mean? Again, at first glance, it seems like she asks for wine. My hour has not come. Jesus, you're a weird dude. Every time this phrase is used in the Gospel of John, he's talking about doing the Father's business and being willing to go to the cross and die. That's why we read Luke chapter 2 earlier in the service. Do you remember the way Jesus, the 12-year-old boy, says, don't you realize I should be in my father's house? I think there's a very similar message happening here. Ma'am, don't you realize I am not here to go fetch errands and kind of do everything according to your agenda? I have to be about my father's mission. Now, here's part of what we need to understand here. Some people take it that way and then say, so he's telling her, I'm not going to do this miracle. And then she says to the servants, well, just do whatever he tells you, and then he does the miracle. So this is where it starts getting all the more difficult and complex. My hour has not come. I'm not ready to do a miracle. Okay, but I'll do the miracle. That just seems weird too. I think what he's saying is, ma'am, the way I will go about fixing this solution is different than what you had in mind I only do what the Father tells me. And therefore, my hour, my time of death, the crucifixion, it's not happening right now. Therefore, this solution can't be big. This solution can't be well known. This needs to be discreet. So I will do this a different way than you probably thought, which is why when you read the rest of the story, Jesus gets basically no credit except from the disciples. Notice that the groom is the one who has seemed to have saved the best wine for last. The whole miracle is done almost like without any fanfare, without any sort of attention whatsoever to Jesus changing water to the wine. The guy that's the head servant doesn't even realize that this happened. The servants know where it came from. But you don't even get commentary of the miracle happening itself. You're just saying, oh, well, they brought some wine. Oh, and it, it, it changed water for, to wine. So, everything seems more discreet. It seems like Jesus knows and has kind of an idea in mind of what his mission here on earth is, and it is different than what people have in mind, including Jesus's mother. So, Jesus is purposeful, He's not doing miracles to show off his power. He's not just at a wedding party doing cool party tricks. He's not trying to show off, hey, I'm the son of God, fire, lightning, everything's great. Look at this, I'm awesome. No, no, he's calculating this. My hour has not yet come. What was the lesson? Trust Jesus with your problems because even when you come to Jesus with your problem, He might give a different solution, but guess what? It will be better. It will be better. When you bring your problems to Jesus, He may not resolve them in the way or in the timing that you wanted, but notice the wonderful words of Mary in verse 5. Do whatever He tells you do whatever he tells you. What trust, what humility. You can tell without a doubt if you follow verse 5 with its logical succession here, Mary is not offended. She's not like, who do you think you're talking to, young man? So we know it's not disrespect, so we can cancel that out. And we know that she's thinking he's going to do something. So it's not, my hour has not come, so I'm not going to do this right now. Then she talks to the servants like, "Ah, I changed my mind. No, she's expecting he's going to do something, but just she doesn't know what and how and why. So she just says, look, servants, follow his lead. Do whatever he tells you. Friends, when you come to Jesus, this is an important lesson that you should, at the very tip of your lips and in the center of your heart, be regularly saying, God, this is my problem. I'm laying it down at your feet. I know you do great things, and I know you love and care for me, but not my will but yours be done. This is how Jesus taught us to pray This is how Jesus himself prayed when he brought his problems to the Father and said, God, take this cup from me. Not my will, but yours be done. So Mary demonstrates to us how to trust God with our problems. Whatever he will do, it will be good, so do it. I tell you, servants, listen to Jesus. And boy, was it good, wasn't it? Lesson number three, watch Jesus provide way more than what you ever asked for. When you bring Jesus your problems, he may do something different, but watch him do way more than what you asked for. What an amazing story in verses six and following. Now there were six stone water jars there in the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, "Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast." So they took it. when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Six, 20- to 30-gallon jars. We ran out. We're out, Jesus. I come and I bring my problems to you, I'm empty, I've got nothing, you know what I'm gonna give you? Way, way more than you ever asked for. I was trying to explain to my kids earlier, I was like, imagine 20 gallons of milk, you know, like, cause they think of milk cartons, and trying to shove that in our refrigerator, and like it won't fit, and then you need to put it in the other one downstairs, and it was like, you, you have like 10 refrigerators of milk, just all milk, that's a lot of milk, kids. This is a lot of wine. Jesus does more than what you ask for. All throughout this sermon series, you're going to see Jesus is giving generously more, abundantly more. (laughs) The good news is lesson four. This is only the half of it. Watch Jesus. This is lesson four. Jesus does more, but he's going to do even better than what you ask for. Not just the quantity, but the quality is way better. Fix this little problem. Oh, I'm going to fix it way more and way better than you could have ever dreamed of. Look at verse 10. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, the main point of this verse, so that way we're not mistaken, is that this wine that Jesus did is extremely expensive stuff. So now imagine this 10 refrigerators full of gallons and gallons of wine. It is $100 by the bottle. I mean, this is worth a fortune. This poor family that could hardly have enough money to get the wine whatever miscalculation they made, they weren't wealthy enough to just have abundance of wine at their disposal to run this party. And now they have way more and way finer, way better than they could have ever asked for. This is fantastic, isn't it? Expensive, good wine. That's the point here. The point is the contrast between normally the good wine gets served first, but now there's the best wine and you have it last that's fantastic, the head servant is saying, that's, that's ridiculous, that's weird, that's not normal. Now, what happens is that people read this, and I think some of this is because of our prohibition culture and all kinds of different things, and you think, wait, is Jesus encouraging drunkenness? What in the world is going on here? Why in the world is Jesus changing water to wine, and not just any wine, but after they have drunk freely, giving them really, really good wine? It's like he's asking, guys, just live it up, get drunk, and have a happy, happy time. That's so missing the point. There's so many different ways we could go into this, but you should just know right off the top, most times they would dilute wine, especially the stronger wine, so this would have been added water to it because they did not condone drunkenness. This was not encouraged. So you would have had maybe one-third wine, two-thirds uh, uh, water. So, so, so just understand that, the, the wine was likely diluted after this. Another thing you should realize is that all that's being said here is that that would have been the normal course, that after some people have drunk way too much, you don't just keep giving them expensive stuff. They don't know any better now. I mean, that's the point. The point is not that Jesus or anybody is encouraging that there would be a big drunken fest at this party. So if you're thinking that this morning, wow, I didn't know Jesus was such a party animal. I think you've probably read too much into the text and let it just read itself. The point here is that the quality of the wine is way better, and it surprises everybody. If you're still caught up about this wine thing, and you're thinking, I I just don't get this. Why would Jesus do this? It's probably because you're really missing the whole point. And to this point, we've not even gotten to the whole point of why this story exists. We've just learned four wonderful lessons about bringing our problems to Jesus, trusting our problems to Jesus, and him doing way more and way better than what we ever ask. But friends, the point of the story is in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him the reason this story exists, the reason why this miracle happened, was so Jesus could reveal his glory for his disciples to believe. Now in case you think, now is that really the most important verse in this story? Let me just turn your attention to the very end of John's Gospel, where John says, now as I'm concluding this whole book, I want you to know that I have chosen these miracles on purpose, for a specific reason, and it's so that you would believe in Jesus and have life in his name. He only chooses seven miracles in this whole long, big book. So he is specific about the miracles he chooses, and furthermore, every commentator is very crystal clear about this. The word sign here is huge. It's very important. These are signs. Signs. They're pointing past themselves. If you're getting caught up in the details about the conversation between Jesus and Mary or about the water turning to wine and Jesus condoning and encouraging drunkenness, you have missed the whole point. The whole point here is that this is a sign. It's like a road sign. When you get to the road sign and there's an arrow pointing, you don't stop and say, We've arrived. You keep going to where it's telling you to go. There's a path that it's leading you down. There is a path that this story is leading us down. If you miss that path today, then you will have missed the whole point of John chapter 2. So what is that point, Phil? What is the arrow that's being pointed to? First, look at the third day. Is that just an insignificant detail? Or is there something more going on here? Is this a sign pointing forward to something greater, deeper? All through the Old Testament, Stephen Dempster has written a wonderful article on this. If you want to do further kind of scholarly research and just really kind of like, where did you get this info from? The third day is one of the most important themes throughout the Old Testament. And and I'll, I'll be honest with you, I didn't even know this until like a few months ago. The third day is huge from Genesis all through the Old Testament. Abraham sacrificed Isaac until the last minute Jesus removed him on the third day. That's a big story in the Old Testament. And that sacrifice that then became a picture of the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, third day. God gave Israelites the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai on the third day. The Israelites crossed the Jordan on the third day into the Promised Land. Esther went in to see the king and pleaded for the salvation of the Israelites on the third day after prayer and fasting. Jonah was spit out by a big fish on the third day. On and on you could go. The third day all through the Old Testament has a kind of symbolic metaphor of something big happens on the third day. So in this story, you see right from the start, on the third day. But what's the significance of that in this context? It's that on the first day, John the Baptist declares, behold, Jesus, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Friends, that's the cross. And on the third day, the great feast, the inauguration of the kingdom of God gets established. The wedding, the banquet, the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth begins and the resurrection of Jesus. And in case you're thinking, no, no, Jesus is not thinking, John's not thinking resurrection, then why in the world is the very next story after the water to wine story? Jesus going into the temple and saying, My body is the new temple. I'm going to destroy this temple, and then three days later, I'm going to raise it back up again. Resurrection, friends. So right from the start, you and I should see that there's a sign being pointed that Jesus is going to do something very big on a third day. And that third day thing that he's going to do is going to be fulfilled in the resurrection of his death and the inauguration of his kingdom and that the wonderful wedding feast of the lamb is going to be inaugurated, started. That's the arrow pointing to something bigger and deeper. You could put it this way, Jesus is getting married in this story. That's what it's pointing toward. No, I'm not talking about the Da Vinci Code weird stories about Jesus getting married with Mary Magdalene. I'm talking about Jesus getting married to the people of God. God, all through the Old Testament, talks about how God wants to have a relationship with his people. And he wants to have it not just like a father, not just like a king over his citizens not just like a shepherd over his sheep, but as a husband has a relationship with his wife, so God wants to have a relationship with his people. So the God-man in flesh, the word who became flesh, is now having a wedding. Why is the first miracle a wedding? Because God wants to get married to his people and have an intimate relationship with them. Do you see the sign? Something more, something deeper is happening here. God wants to know you. Know you intimately in the same way a husband knows his wife. And if you understand that all the promises of when this happens, this great wedding feast, were you guys paying attention? Church service started. Isaiah chapter 25. There will be a day when the great wedding feast is brought about. There will be rich food. And there will be well-aged wine. There will be the finest of wines. All through the prophets, Isaiah 25, Amos chapter 9. Read Amos 9 later today and see that the prophets prophesied of a day when there would be a wedding between God and his people with heaven and earth. And when that wedding happened, there would be a wonderful, fantastic party and the wine would be flowing and it would be the best of the best wine. This is not some cool party trick, friends. This is the God of the universe coming down in human form and saying, the first miracle I'm going to do, the first way I'm going to display my glory is to show that I love you like a husband loves his wife. Furthermore, wine is a symbol of great joy. Jesus is the joy bringer. He is the groom at the party that has enough wine for everybody, so the joy will never run out. It's not just a lot of joy, it's the best quality of joy. And I just want to pause at this moment and just apply this to us and say, friends, this is one of the reasons why there are scores and scores of people not coming to church this morning. It's not shame on them, oh, they should get in church. It's pity them that they are missing out on the greatest, the finest, and the best joy that the world could ever experience. The joy of knowing your purpose. The joy of experiencing a relationship with your maker. God, in the person of Jesus, is the groom of the feast. He makes rivers of wine flow. Do you think that God is this cosmic killjoy out to just kill all of your fun? Are Christians known for being the people that just sits around and says, you know, that's not really that funny. No, we should be the people that are full of joy. What great life he has given us. John's gospel is going to tell us again and again, Jesus has come to give you life and life abundantly to the full. He says in John chapter 15, he's going to say, I am going to put my joy in you so that your joy would be complete. That's what this story is about. Joy, joy, joy. And if you think Christianity is a cosmic killjoy, joy, follow the rules, make sure you're a goody-two-shoes kind of Christianity, then you have missed Christianity. Why in the world is the first miracle of Jesus a party where the wine runs out and he changes the water to wine? Because Christianity is a whole lot more than just obeying rules. It is about grace. It is about undeserved grace that leads to exceeding joy. And if you didn't get that in the story, then again, you're missing it because there's a sign here. Remember what I said earlier? Who gets all of the credit for the wine at the party? not Jesus, the groom. And so you and I will get to experience the wonderful feast of God where the wine flows, and you did not deserve it. So if you think becoming a Christian, being a Christian, is all revolved around your performance and your good works and your ability to keep things going, Admit that the wine has run out and you just come and you fall at the face of Jesus. You trust him with all of your problems and you realize that through the cross he takes the cup of God's wine wrath so that you and I could take the cup of his mercy, his love, and his joy. That's what the story's about. And for the next nine weeks I hope you have had your appetite whetted. Meals with Jesus Jesus is the king of the banquet, the joy bringer. And I love how the story ends. He saves the best for last. In the same way that this wine was a symbol of that the greatest joy and the greatest celebration will be at the very end, so too for you and for me. When you come to Jesus, the best will always be at last. Let's pray together.